I'd like to say that not only do we thank Piccolo House Church for the decorations, but Ed and Nancy showed up too. (laughs) It's always good to have the eye of an artist to criticize what everybody does. (laughs) And you know, I'd like to comment also on the uh, lighting of uh, Kendall uh, Square. Uh, I think we've been to every one of these, haven't we, Diana? Probably five, six years I think we've been going. And last night was just delightful. And Hanya, uh, you know, the the uh, company that originally backed this was the McGraw Realtors. And Mr. McGraw's wife is Beth Ringel. And for years she was the mistress of ceremonies. What an improvement. <laughs> uh, your sparkling smile and enthusiasm was just right for the... Also... Uh, you talk so fast when you speak Spanish, uh, you just lose me. But uh, <laughs> And I want to tell you something, uh, Pops, as, as I thought about the stars of the evening, I guess Hanya was Tops, and uh, then we have all of the others that are of a certain category and then some down here. Well, Pops was at this category. How Pops did great last night. And let me say, you who don't have any relationship with this puppet team have no idea how much work these people put in. Uh, When uh, Pops is looking forward to a performance, in essence, it becomes a part-time job. Uh, The uh, amazing hours they practice, and they'll be practicing yet today to get ready for the performance, uh, where that's going to be, I forget, (laughs) this coming, where? Little Lighthouse, that's right. So, you know, we really commend these folks. They take seriously this ministry. We appreciate that. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. And they were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is well pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God 
for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. What a beautiful story. It is gentle. It is peaceful. It is lovely. And when we read that story, we have to be impressed with the fact that, humanly speaking, the core characters in this story are just a group of nobodies. Joseph and Mary were nondescript individuals from the rural province of Galilee. Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, lived in a village in the hills of Judea, and he was one of 20,000 second-level priests who served in Jerusalem from time to time. Shepherds, considered among the lowest class of society. As a matter of fact, shepherds were under the rabbinical ban and were not allowed to be educated beyond the very rudiments of Scripture. Common people. And then we think of the squalor of that birth, the baby born in a stable. Perhaps there were no animals in the stable, but certainly we know the odor left behind by animals was there. There was no woman to assist Mary, to give her the tender touch of a sister during that birth. There was no midwife. Mary or Joseph had to cut the umbilical cord, and Mary or Joseph wrapped the baby in claws and lay him in the feeding trough of animals. These were people with no political power, no wealth. There was no station in life that they occupied that could have commended them to the people of Jerusalem. They were just nobodies. Some weeks after the birth of the child, Joseph, after Joseph had found lodging for his young family in a house somewhere in the region of Bethlehem. They were surprised because visitors arrived that really stunned them. These were men who came with wealth. They were magi from the east. They were soothsayers, dream interpreters, astrologers, astronomers, probably from Persia or Chaldea. By some revelation of which we do not know, God had told them that as they observed a particular star, that this star was a sign that the king of the Jews had been born. And they were motivated to follow that star. And although people have tried to talk about the alignment of Jupiter with certain planets and all of that, none of this natural phenomena really fits. This was a miraculous star because it moved and led them. It led them to Jerusalem and they thought, well, if we're going to visit a newborn prince, a king, he must be in the palace. They went to the palace and that was the wrong place. Jewish religious leaders who knew the Scriptures said, the prophets said, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And so they started walking toward Bethlehem, and the star again appeared, again appeared, and led them to the house where the baby, now probably several weeks old, lived with his father and his mother. And here they brought expensive gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. We don't know how many of these men there were. Tradition says three because they brought three gifts, but we can't know. 
We don't know their name. Tradition says that their names were Caspar, Melchar, and Balthazar, but we don't know. That's just legend. But the gifts that they did bring were very expensive, so they must have had some access of wealth. We sing the songs, we three kings of Orient are, but they weren't kings. They were dream interpreters, soothsayers, astrologers, astronomers, men supposedly known for their wisdom. When they prepared to go back home, God in a dream instructed them to not go back to Jerusalem. Because you see, as they had left the palace, Herod the Great had said, when you find this king, come back and tell me where he is, that I too might go and worship him. But of course, you and I know He wanted to know where he was so that he could kill him. And so in this story of beauty, gentleness, tenderness, and awe, there also is another side, a story of horrible ugliness. This week as I thought about this story, it is that path that I feel that God would have me travel today as we talk together about the birth of our Lord. In Herod's plan, we see the embryonic picture of the future of Christ's kingdom and its relationship with the worldly kingdom of Satan. This morning I want to focus on that embryonic picture and see as it developed over the years, as it progressed through the centuries, then briefly take a look at what this means to you and me and even the future of this uh, pattern as predicted by our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 9-11, our Lord predicted, They will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, you will be hated by all nations because of my name, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Satan's desire to kill the Christ child before he could achieve the purpose of his birth is consistent with Satan's nature. He is a murderer. As I read the account of Herod's desire to kill Jesus, I I think of that passage in Revelation 12, 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And as we go on and read the rest of that story, how the woman was protected. Some see this as, as an image of Mary, others an image of the church, but it is a mysterious reflection of Herod's plan and Satan's plan to try to destroy the Christ child. In one of his debates with Jewish leaders, Jesus describes Satan this way in John 8. You are the father, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
And the very first lie that Satan told resulted in death. You know, in Genesis 3, when he began to talk to Eve, and uh, Eve said, you know, God said we shouldn't eat of that tree because the day that we eat of it, in that day we shall surely die. Satan said, you shall not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve believed the eye, uh, the lie. She, she ate of the fruit, and Adam ate of the fruit. And today, either you will attend my funeral, or I will attend yours. Satan murdered the human race with his lie. He has been a murderer from the beginning. Satan desires to remove from this earth everyone who is an agent of the kingdom of God. Speaking of you and me, our Lord Jesus Christ said in John 7, 38, Who he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his belly will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit was not yet given when Jesus spoke this because He had not yet been glorified. Now He has, and it is true. Satan wants to do all that he can to remove from this planet every person who carries within him the Holy Spirit and is a representative of the kingdom of God. Now why God allows some to be killed and some to be saved, there's no one in this room who can give a definitive answer. Have you ever thought about that situation in Acts chapter 12, in which Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he beheaded James. And when he saw that that pleased the Jews, then he arrested Peter and planned to do the same thing to him as soon as the uh, days of Passover were over. And we thrill about the fact that the angels came and miraculously delivered Peter from that place and brought him joyously to his company. But what about James who was beheaded? What about those who were arrested because Herod wanted to mistreat them? There is no hint at all that they were delivered. Why was Peter delivered? And the others not. The others evidently had fulfilled God's purpose upon the earth, and Peter hadn't. A few weeks ago, Sarah Wright was in a horrible accident at 6th in Utica, and the car flipped and flipped and flipped. And all the spectators expected her to be dead or broken. She was neither dead nor broken, suffered some after effects, but neither dead nor broken. Satan wanted to kill this demure young woman who carries within her the Holy Spirit. And God said, no. <laughs> her time upon the earth isn't ended. You know, we're so accustomed in this church to sending out missionaries we're so accustomed in this church to sending Gordon off somewhere and Joel off somewhere and others off somewhere that it almost becomes casual. But listen, it is serious business.
every time we release a brother or a sister or a family to go into the world and enter the front lines in behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan wants to kill them and he will look for every opportunity he can find to do just that. Jacob, at the end of his life, looking back at all that happened to him, when praying over the sons of Joseph said this, The angel who has delivered me from all harm, bless these boys. Matthew 4, 6, Satan tempting Jesus said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up. Matthew 26, 53, when Jesus was being challenged, He said, Do you not think I can appeal to my Father? He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. In Matthew 18.10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, speaking of children, for I say to you, there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I believe that when we pray to release a brother or a sister or a family to go into the battlefield, we should pray for God to send a company of strong angels to go with them, to protect them, to stand beside them, because Satan will do all that he can to put a bullseye on them and kill them and get them off this earth. It should be a burden of concern and prayer and intercession. Oh God, send angels to guard them. You know, one way that Satan kills is to gain control of governments. Through evil people or sometimes just people with great egos. <laughs> it was the establishment that killed Jesus, even though it was a part of God's plan. It still was the establishment. Early on, the Roman government saw Christians as a threat and, so, and saw them as unpatriotic, and so they began to kill them. Nero, the first persecutor, coated Christians with tar and tied them to poles and set them on fire that they might be torches during one of his orgiastic bacchanals. One way that Satan kills Christians today is through despotic Islamic governments and some people that really aren't Muslims but claim to be. I know when Gordon and I were going to Uzbekistan smuggling in Bibles, the governor, the ruler of Uzbekistan had recently declared himself a Muslim. He had been a blatant communist, but it was politically correct to become a Muslim. But he still kept the Muslims under control. And he persecuted anyone whose religion was motivating them in a way that he thought some way might threaten his control. We've often heard it from this pulpit, but let's hear it again. Yesterday, some brothers and sisters in certain nations of the world were killed. 
today in some nations of the world, brothers and sisters will be killed. Tomorrow, in some nations of the world, some brothers and sisters will be killed. We do not know them. Some of them are anonymous individuals living in villages, and they're known only to God and their killers. Someday we will know them. We will be with them in eternity where they will be honored. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood upon those who dwell upon the earth? There was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. Brother and sister, as the things predicted by Jesus in Matthew 24 continue to unfold, I wonder how long it will be before some of us will receive the white robe of martyrdom. And I ask, are you ready? When Satan cannot kill. His second maneuver is to control and intimidate. When the Jewish authorities were afraid to kill the apostles because the apostles had become very popular with the people through their miraculous activity, they sought to intimidate them. Acts 4.15 when they had ordered them to leave the council, and they did this so they could confer, they said, what shall we do with these men? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to longer, no longer speak to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. <laughs> but of course, we're only going to say what we saw and what we heard. And so they went on. <laughs> and the miracles increased to the point that people were laying the sick on the sidewalk, hoping Peter's shadow would fall on them. And they arrested him again. And they wanted to kill them, but Gamaliel said, wait a minute, you know, this could be of God. And if it is, we don't want to oppose it. 
Well, they took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Satan tried to intimidate. They would not be intimidated. Paul, as he was traveling in his ministry, asked the Ephesians to pray for him that no intimidation would curb him, but that he might be bold. Ephesians 6.18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul faced a lot of intimidation. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 23. Are they the servants of Christ? I speak insane. I'm more so. Far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. You see, the devil wanted to kill Paul. And God kept saying, no. And so the devil tried to intimidate Paul. And Paul said, no. <laughs> he kept going. All of us know that on a personal level, intimidation can take place in a lot of ways. We can be ridiculed in school. We can be ridiculed on the job. There can be pressure from an employer to compromise, deceive, cheat in order for the company to achieve the goal. Let me again speak of the, many of our, to our friends of uh, Erkin Bakayev. Erkin was the chief financial officer of Weatherford Oil Company in Moscow. His boss kept pressing him to compromise, to do things that are unethical. And as a servant of Jesus, Erkin refused and refused and refused. He had a wonderful job, highly paid, a private vehicle with a driver. His family occupied for Moscow a very large opulent apartment. Money was paid for the children to go to private schools. All of that a part of the job. But he would not be intimidated and he was fired. <laughs> Feeling it is more important to be pleasing to God than to have a comfortable job in Moscow, Russia. Today there are laws in some countries that ban proselyting. Conversation with neighbors and others who view us as ignorant. I could go on. You know the list. <laughs> Satan 
uses all kinds of tools to try to intimidate us. I, for one, am ready to practice civil disobedience. If the time ever comes when the government passes any law that restricts my freedom to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, I cannot speak for you, but I speak for myself. Now, it's easy for me to stand here in the safety of this pulpit and say that. I pray to God I'll have the courage to do it if I ever face it. And I'll not be surprised if I do. In one city recently, the Roman Catholic uh, Charities had, had an adoption agency that was a blessing to the city. It had existed in many years, and the law was passed then that all agencies had to adopt babies to same-sex couples. The Catholic Church said, we won't do it. There was government pressure put upon them, and so they closed the doors. They would not obey. One wonders if some other action might have been taken. I don't know. Satan's third tactic, when he cannot kill the servant, when he cannot intimidate the servant, his third tactic is to join the church <laughs> and to pollute it from within with false doctrine and compromise. Remember in the Matthew 24 passage, Jesus said there would come false prophets. They would deceive many. One case, he said, would even deceive the very elect if time weren't shortened. 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul wrote to Timothy, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid men such as these. 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And boy, don't we see that today. <laughs> you know, I, in my notes, I listed all kinds of things. I thought, why read this list? Because everybody in the congregation knows about them. They're in the news, all the controversy. You know, we can criticize the Roman Catholic Church because in its history, both the village priest and the Pope had mistresses. Uh, they perverted doctrine for profit. They started wars. But when we look at the Protestant world today, I have to say that him who is without sin cast the first stone. 
because the Protestant world today is so full of compromise and sad to say wickedness and it is the church that often is the main propagator of such compromise and I don't need to give the list Satan has joined the church it's sad to hear some church leaders say that diversity and choice are more important than the absolute truth contained in the Word of God. A friend of mine who attended two seminaries, I was having lunch with him a while back, attended two seminaries on the way to being credentialed in a particular denomination, said one of the professors who taught the four Gospels in the seminary said to the students, now we know that this is just a book of legends. It really isn't fact. But the people in the pews aren't ready to understand this, so preach it as if it were true. What about that? <laughs> Training people to be ministers of the Gospels and tell them, be deceptive. Be deceptive. The people aren't ready for what we know is real. Satan has joined the church. One way, one of the greatest dangers to the church is the seduction of political power. Thomas Cahill wrote, Through the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity in 313, and made it the new emperor's pet, Christianity had been received into Rome, not Rome into Christianity. Now, I might argue with him about Christianity becoming Constantine's pet, but his point is well taken. When Christianity became the quasi-official religion of the Roman Empire, the church was changed forever. And that political alignment, I, and I stopped and think, can I think of any case where the church has had political alignments that the church has not been negatively impacted? I can't think of a one. The Reformation under Luther. The Reformation under Calvin. The Church of England. In the, in the American colonies with the Puritans, the Congregationalists. Every time the church became entwined and identified and partnership with political power, something was wrong in the church. It was true in Virginia when Baptists were flogged and put in jail because of their evangelical preaching. You know, if Satan can just seduce the church into identifying with political power, rather than the persuasion of the Holy Spirit and the anointed gospel, then he's won a great victory. Something goes wrong every time the church becomes entwined with political power. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, we Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In Calvin's Geneva, where the church was one arm, and when somebody was guilty of heresy, they were turned over to the civil authorities and it was the civil authorities to punish them. 
One man was named Servius. Servius was a man who struggled with the concept of the Trinity. He said, I just can't put my mind around that. And so he went around preaching against the Trinity, and so he was executed. One of Calvin's friends, after that happened, said to him, to kill a man is not to defend a doctrine. It is just to kill a man. (laughs) That's the truth, isn't it? Although martyrdom, for most of us, seems to be a very remote possibility, in the future it may be a fate for some of us. And again I ask, are you ready? Intimidation, in one form, it's just almost a given, isn't it? (laughs) I ask, can you withstand it? We're surrounded by compromise and a polluted church. And I say, let each of us consciously and intentionally take up our cross daily. I'm already dead. What else can they do to me? 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 16. Flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. By the way, gentleness is so important. If you walk around with a t-shirt that says, God hate fags, you sure aren't representing Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Jesus said, He that confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Father, in the holy name of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you give us the wisdom for the day in which we now live and the days which are ahead. We ask that you would give us our wisdom concerning which battles to fight and which ones to walk away from. We know it is not wise to die upon every hill. By your indwelling Holy Spirit, God, we pray that within ourselves we'd have the right recipe of boldness and gentleness and courage and quiet confidence and strength. We long, O Father, as individuals and as a church always to be in the center of your will. Father, hedge us in. Hedge us in, Lord, so that it might always be so. Through Jesus, amen.